we've touched on this a little bit before, but not to the depth we'll go into today. But imagine a relationship at work with, let's say, a, a peer, a, a lateral peer or something like that. You may have difficulty working with them, but if you understood their backstory more, it might make it a little easier to understand why they operate the way they do, maybe even why they have that chip on their shoulder, that attitude, or maybe even that joyful mood. Maybe it's they're always <laughs> smiling. You're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you always happy? And maybe you realize if you knew their backstory, they had something traumatic happen. Sure. And they promised themselves they would always see the joy in life and always focus on the positive. And so you might think that person's weird for being too happy. Or that person's weird for being too much of a jerk. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense if you understand their backstory. And then you can kind of see them in different light and your relationship blossoms because you have more detail and more context. And there's just so much more understanding from there. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. Adam, I'm curious, have you recently heard a good story, read a good book, or even seen a movie that sort of stuck with you. Yeah. We watched the movie last night. What is it called? Gosh. I'll have to look it up. It doesn't matter. The name of the movie doesn't matter. I'll figure it out. I'll put it in the show notes. But the story was this fella who had an accident, was walking across a street in a rainy day, and got hit by a some sort of bike, like a motorized bike. It's like a scooter of sorts and became a paraplegic. And the story was sort of this love story. And, you know, if they'd have just jumped right into the middle of the story, maybe I wouldn't understand the movie very well, but because they began at the beginning and they gave the full backstory, it was easy to empathize with his character and the development. And like any movie, you can go deeper because movies aren't as deep as books, but they gave a lot of context towards like who he was and why he was the way he was. And as a paraplegic, he was less happy with his life because he could be, he was less active than he was prior in his other life, as he had said. And so it's this full backstory of, you know, him, this accident, this love story and this full arc. And you can really appreciate the relationship that came from the two because of all the detail in there and all the nuance. Well, that's what I think is so fascinating is, is stories are really powerful. You know, I love the way I get to learn nowadays, you know, with doing school twice, like with my kids. Mm -hmm. And recently I had to do a little lesson on folk tales and it just sort of sparked my curiosity because the whole premise of this assignment was recognizing the value that folk tales have and that they're designed to learn. So stories, ironically, help us to learn from anything. 
how many times you hear like analogies or stories or, or other ways in which you can relate the information that you hadn't previously considered. Yeah. Well, data for data's sake isn't actionable. You often have to tie it to, you know, some emotional buy-in and things like that. And I think that's why stories really get at you because it's like an empathy tie-in or an emotional tie-in or maybe even being able to place yourself in the scenario to some degree where you can sort of like, I suppose, transplant yourself in. You got it. You know, see yourself in the story or someone you know. Right. It, it pulls on your emotions. And so all of a sudden now, I mean, this is what makes reading even fictional books fascinating, right? Like, oh, like you're on the journey with them or I relate to this character or that character. But yeah. the nuances or the contextual factors for that individual really matter and help you better understand and then relate with them, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so I see the power of story being super important as a conversation because there is a learning process that comes. And I think in the workplace, how often and, you know, in relationships, because we don't, you know, opt out of those when we go to work, but how important story is as it relates to feedback and understanding other people so that we can work alongside and we can all grow and learn as well. Yeah. We've touched on this a little bit before, but not to the depth we'll go into today. But imagine a relationship at work with, let's say, a, a peer, a, a lateral peer or something like that. You may have difficulty working with them, but if you understood their backstory more, it might make it a little easier to understand why they operate the way they do, maybe even why they have that chip on their shoulder, that attitude, or maybe even that joyful mood. Maybe it's they're always <laughs> smiling. You're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you always happy? And maybe you realize if you knew their backstory, they had something traumatic happen. Sure. And they promised themselves they would always see the joy in life and always focus on the positive. And so you might think that person's weird for being too happy. Or that person's weird for being too much of a jerk. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense if you understand their backstory. And then you can kind of see them in different light and your relationship blossoms because you have more detail and more context. And there's just so much more understanding from there. Yeah. So imagine that understanding people's stories give you so much more breadth and depth to navigate it, right? I mean, if I was like, hey, Adam, I want you to go, you know, walk this tightrope up above, you know, like a 25-story building, okay? You're not going to be like, sure, I'll do that, <laughs> right? That's right. This little, narrow, <laughs> this little narrow path that you've got. And so what is we know is really helpful in navigating our lives is flexibility and being able to adapt and do things in different ways. And so imagine I just then said, hey, I paved this really you know, wide. You've got six feet on either side of planks that you can walk from one building to the next 25 feet in the air. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be so scary in the same way, and you'd be more prone to approach it. Let's face it, everybody's got their own little idiosyncrasies that make it challenging to interface with them, right? And these can't help but show up at work, especially when there's aspects of pressure, right? Yeah, because you can read a lot into things that happen that are yeah. just by happenstance and not on purpose. But because... 
you're already anxious about an interaction or have a preconceived notion or whatever it might be, you're like, you start to read into things that are not actually true. Or maybe they are. <laughs> you never know. But <laughs> the point is, is you start to really, you know, uh, put information into place that may not actually be there because you have insecurities or concerns between a relationship and you start to read into things that are not actually there. And so those curt responses from them, one word or two words or whatever, or delayed response even, you might think, well, sure. they haven't responded to me yet. I, like, are they angry right. with me? Is this thing that I thought was an issue, is it becoming a bigger issue? Really, they were just busy with their kids or <laughs> doing other things, you know? Exactly. And they're just like, you know, getting to it when they had the time. And But meanwhile, you've worried, you've been anxious, you've had projected thoughts, you know, about this truth that's not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the other thing with this is, well, you know, we can sort of get feedback from other people. We we fare a lot better, as we've mentioned before, when we actually use our words. So if I have a conversation with or someone, you know, to be like, hey, I totally didn't understand your response or I was just sort of thrown off. Can you help me understand? It then changes the dynamics instead mm -hmm. of you just running your old play or sort of filling in the blanks according to your own perception and your own projection, dare I say. Yeah. A key phrase for me I've learned a long time ago when someone is talking to me about something in this scenario that you're painting here is a response of, how do you mean? Yeah. So they say something and they explain themselves and I don't understand it. The easiest, most you know, concise way to respond saying what you're saying is, how do you mean? Yeah. Because right? then they'll, they'll be prompted to say, well, when you do this, this or this, it makes me feel this way. Or I want this. Can you provide it in that way? You know, they, they have to give more detail. And it's three words. How do you? Well, is that four words? How do you mean? <laughs> That's four <How> words. <laughs> Sorry. Right. It's like spelling. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Counting, spelling. How many words is in that? How do you mean? You know, it's like it's it's so easy. How do you mean? Yeah, but so that prompts more of this sort of effort around discovery as opposed to judgment. I'm not leading with presumption. I'm actually leading with a sense of curiosity, which makes a difference. Yeah, You can say it several times, too. You can say it, how do you mean? Uh -huh. How do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Mm, how do you mean? You can say it a couple of different ways if you really wanted to. But you can keep saying it over and over and over until you get your, your understanding. Right. It's really good. In a scenario, whenever you're getting a rebuttal, you're trying to propose something and somebody mm -hmm. is giving a response back and they're sort of not, it's sort of like a give and take there. And sure, really, I learned it in sales training was if someone's giving me a rebuttal to what I'm proposing as a solution to the problem and they're proposing an anti-solution or a reason to not move forward, well, how do you mean? Because sure. it, it, it forces them to explain and in a very in a way that doesn't get anybody upset the way you worded it was better you know there was no hidden meaning in there yeah you know there was no well you said this but you didn't say that can you explain that's giving more detail to the angst where this is just sort of neutral how do you mean yep yeah so i love it this guy joe laza i don't i'm going to wreck his last name lazaska he says, and so 
this is just a really good quote I couldn't help but share. It says, a few different things happen when we hear a really good story. The first is that the neural activity in our brain increases five-fold. Stories illuminate the city of our mind. And he goes on to say, stories make us remember and stories make us care. And that's so significant, right? Because it like creates a broader landscape and meaning as opposed to just, you know, relating to a, a thing. Mm-hmm. We all remember better too when things have meaning. If I gave you, you know, four random words and told you to remember them, maybe you could, but it's actually really different if I told you a story and said, you know, tell me back that story. Mm-hmm. And even more so, if you can relate with the story, mm-hmm. right? And even if I couldn't remember the whole story, I could at least paraphrase most of it and get the, which is interesting about language because I don't have to say exactly what you said to deliver meaning. Mm-hmm. Meaning in language is really interesting because, you know, you can say something of meaning 10 or 15 different ways. I don't know if that's true or not, like in terms of the actual math, but you get the point. I'm, you know, right. But it, it, you can say something in many different ways and deliver the same meaning. Yeah. And so, look, our brains process stories differently than it does any other feedback. Because one, stories pull in emotions, right? You can't help but emote in some way. Mm-hmm. Two, stories help us relate better to others, which in turn means we can empathize better with them. And three, stories improve memory which allows for improved learning. Stories make data meaningful. So it's almost as if stories create anchor points in our brains, right? So it's like, oh yeah, I get that. And if you think of the landscape or terrain of our minds, I mean, they're all over the place. So to be able to relate something, like I think about this a lot in terms of how much I, I deal with more abstract concepts in therapy. So I'm trying to help people who don't have a framework around why they're having the issues they are per se, and that I'm trying to to help them understand something that they don't relate to or relate with and can't necessarily name. So ironically, I do this a lot, and I I never really thought about it because I talk about it in terms of analogies or metaphors, but I tell like many stories often. Mm-hmm. So that people can can sort of anchor in, or I talk about stitching in and bringing a couple of things together that they hadn't necessarily seen in that way. So it then ha- holds a different meaning because they then bring themselves into that story and are go, oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. It kind of makes sense, though, because when we talk about memory, so back in the memory and learning episode, we talked about the ways in which our brains vacuum seal Memory is generally around a high degree of emotion, positive or negative. Touche. So it it would make sense. I mean, as we go through this, it would make sense that as we collect memories, emotion is tied to it. And if stories evoke emotion, it would make sense that stories can evoke memory and learning Mm -hmm. and recall. And I suppose if you hear the story enough, you get those neuropathways worn in quite well. Yeah, it's interesting because having done a fair amount of, you know, cognitive testing, there's actually tests that look at 
how we remember things. And so there's, I've administered this one test so many times that I, I know the story by heart. Like I don't have to look back at it to be like, repeat this back to me. Da, 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 da. <laughs> because of the frequency. And, you know, my only thing is then I sometimes overlap multiple stories because I've associated that these couple of stories go together. Right. Can you give us a preview of the story? Is, it, is that interesting or is it kind of boring? No, it's, well, for test security purposes, I don't. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Intellectual property sort of, reasons. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's funny because, you know, thinking about ways in which I give, you know, when my friends are sort of, you know, people I encounter ask their, they end up like concerned, like, gosh, I'm having so much trouble remembering, I'm getting older, like, do I need to be worried? And I give them a list or sort of, a little snippet of a story and be like, tell it back to me. And I'm like, nah, you're good. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're generally, you're okay. We don't need to be concerned yet. You know, something in the notes here on, on autobiographical memory, that's what, when we were reading some stuff by Daniel Siegel, that really intrigued me. I never considered how we as humans have an understanding of autobiographical, meaning it's my story. And then yep. I can also understand it in uh, in sort of chapters in a way, you know, sort of serial, serial learning. Sure. In terms of like, well, when I was this age and then this age and then this age, mm -hmm. well, it's my story. But then I also understand it in terms of time. Yeah. That's super interesting to me. Sure. Yeah. Because it changes then as well, right? I mean, your seven-year-old story when you were seven, as told by your seven-year-old self, is very different than possibly telling the story of your seven-year-old self as a 25-year-old versus on and on. Yeah, especially because my concerns as a 25-year-old is way different than when I was seven. But, you know, it was still the same me, but not the same me, right? Different brain, different abilities, brain-wise. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I had different concerns. Like G.I. Joe's were a really big deal to me when I was seven. Yeah. And if I lost sure. one, it would have been the end of the world at, yes. at the age of 25. Not such a big deal. Yeah, that's super significant and recognizing that the stories we tell ourselves to really make a difference in how we feel. Mm -hmm. It's it's so interesting, like even going back to, you know, like I think of your four, you know, word sentence, right? And mine is tell me more. Like Talk what was yours? How— how do you mean? How do you mean, right? And that there's a way that people associate things that they're not aware that they're associating and that these are just stories that they've told themselves either about who they are, what they can do, or where they're going to go, which then affect how they interface with themselves in the world, right? Yeah, totally. This is so fascinating to me, just how, how wrapped up we can be in stories. I think of it like like Star Wars, for example, right? It, it's just a crazy big story. But once you understand the bigger context, the universe even, that can come from a big story, right? You can continually expand upon it. There's some degree of, of scrutiny out there, whether it's a good story or a bad story as it expands. But the point is, is like it was just a small idea at one point. Yeah. And then as the story got bigger and bigger – a universe emerges. Same thing with Marvel. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like these big universes, this uh, Marvel gigantic universe of all these different characters coming to play. You got these little mini characters. And it's like 
it that's an example of how big storytelling can be because you care about let's say Infinity War or Endgame more because you watch literally all of these Marvel movies, 25 movies or more to create this one final ending of a movie. Storytelling's huge. Yeah, but so if I can flip the lens for just a second, I want to move what you just said over into literally people in our world of there's you and I and we're just, you know, small potatoes amidst the entirety of the people within the world and recognizing that our stories matter and can have power within the world and change people and change the way things go. Sure. So this is why like learning stories, not just knowing your own, but also having a curiosity around other people really can make a difference. You know, I'll share this. I remember, and it wasn't necessarily story, but it was just this shift in perspective. My, my husband is fabulous at doing this for me, but when I worked in this office, when I lived in Texas, like he just always reminded me about all the other players that allowed me to do my job. So like, I remember walking in and being grateful all the time that my trash was empty. It might seem like super petty, but that somebody, somebody's life, like that's how they were earning their living for that time. And it just made my life easier And I just had so much more appreciation for the parts to the greater whole that enabled me to then just do what I felt like I could do. Mm -hmm. Well, I came into work today and the electricity still worked. Yeah. The internet was still there. Yep. Somehow the internet was still there. All these people (laughs) making the internet, right? Not only the infrastructure, but the all the necessary hop spots between my IP address to other IP addresses to hit these servers, like all this complex stuff simplified by one button for me. Right. Yeah. Such utility in a way. Yeah. And so one of the things that researchers have found when it comes to stories that I think is so important for people to know is that ironically language, and I don't know, dare I say dialect doesn't matter. Language, the power of stories is universal. So these researchers at USC found these patterns in people's brains when people find meaning in stories, regardless of their language. So they took people and stories in English, Farsi, and Mandarin Chinese and looked at what happened in people's brains using a functional MRI, and they mapped their responses to narratives in these languages. And guess what? They all looked the same. Mm. So it's almost as if story has the power to transcend language. Well, this kind of drives out what really drove me to want to produce this show in the first place was that while there's so much that divides us, there's significant that unites us. You have the same human brain I have. We may be different gender. We may be different color. We may be different from different geographical areas. We may be speaking different languages. We may have different life experiences. Mm-hmm. But the thing that unites us is our humanity. And your yep. brain works the same way as mine, regardless of language, regardless of gender, regardless of background, regardless of all these things. Now, there may be some mm-hmm. differences in there because just life, right? Circumstances. Mm. But the point is, is that we share a common bond, which is humanity. Right. And there's similarity and sameness because of that. Right. 
Right. Yeah. So in the case of each of these languages, what the researchers found was that they resulted in these unique patterns of activations in the what we call default mode network of our brains. And so this network engages interconnected brain regions, including the medial prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate cortex, the inferior parietal lobe, and the lateral temporal cortex, and of course, hippocampal formation. And so that hippocampal formation, we've talked about memory, and that the hippocampus is that key brain structure involved in that. And so additional studies, including this one, suggest that this default mode network is actually working behind the scenes while the brain's at rest, but it like continues to find meaning in the story and it sort of serves as an autobiographical memory retrieval that influences how our brain relates the past, the future, ourselves, and our relationship to others. Mm. Like a big old memory cake. Right. So look at that, Adam. You even said it before I said it with the research. Well, sure, because I'm so smart. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it would make sense. I mean, we all have emotion. Emotions are involved with memory. I do find it extremely fascinating that regardless of language and scenarios here that we our brains seem to take in narrative and storytelling and memory and this whole function of past, present, future ourselves and interweaving all that together. Right. The same. And that's just um, – it, it provides me hope because mm-hmm. regardless of who you – if you're a human, right? Right. We can relate. Yeah, right? Like I talk about relationships sort of like overlapping circles, not that they fully overlap like eclipse, but that there are these areas which in, you know, people – you know, cooperate and both negotiate that. Mm-hmm. And and what stories do is really help create that opportunity to relate better. Like, I see you, you see me. Like, we both put our pants on the same way. Maybe, maybe not. But, right leg first. Right? <laughs> yeah. But so um, imagine the way in which that establishes a different sort of foundation with which you can move towards another person. Yeah. Right? So given this, you know, stories also help change our attitudes, which in turn leads to changing our response. Right? Ideally, that's learning. Right? Because if I'm aware of my attitude— then maybe I start to consider my response. What's a quick example of or definition of attitude from a you know psychological standpoint? It's funny. You say that, and I just think about one of my children. Like when I parent, and I'm always like, it's not what you're doing. It's the attitude you have while you're doing it right. <laughs> that you're in trouble for. <laughs> right? <laughs> Great. <laughs> But the attitude is, to some degree, the emotion and intangible way in which I make sense of information or sort of like, that. right? I have to talk about attitude as having an emotional component, sure. right? Because I can say in the same way, like, it's fine and I, I'm, I'm okay, or my attitude is like, it's fine. And that has a little bit different attitude or a behavior, right? Attitude, like, (laughs) 
you know, my daughter has this stance and my son has commented like, mom, why does she do that? Like she'll like stand, you know, with the one hand on the hip mm-hmm. and, you know, she's still of elementary age. So it's amazing that there's that much attitude in that little body. <laughs> but attitudes are the sort of way of perceiving and reacting, right? Like how would you make sense of it? I would Google it and I would read the definition, <laughs> which is what I'm going to do now. <laughs> Because uh, of course well, you would. My first thought, I'll give my Adam take on it, and I'll give the Google take on it. So the Adam take was more like demeanor towards a scenario or a person or a thing. Yep. Which just requires more digging. Because what does demeanor mean? Well, I think, and that's why I turned towards and got stuck on explaining myself because I was like, why? Well, that doesn't make sense to me beyond my own understanding of demeanor. What does that mean? Break that down. And so they've got a couple, obviously. Um, the one that makes more sense to me is a position of the body proper to or implying an action or mental state. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think mental status is, is sort of key there because it's like, how am I thinking? Right. Am I exhausted? Am I frantic? Am I perfectly fine and calm? You know, that sort of position. It's like a positioning. Mm-hmm. You know, how am I pointing? Am I pointing in a negative way towards this thing or or scenario or a positive way and so attitude is like is adjustment my angle my position right so given that it would make sense to talk about biases in relation to this right because we all have our biases and that very much can be based on what our experiences have been up to this point in our lives well i can only understand what i understand (laughs) You know, and what I understand <laughs> right. is what I've learned. And what I've learned is from my experience. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as if um, you lead your life in a way that you have understanding of all. It's, you can really only, only sort of live a life and have an attitude towards things as per your experience of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we need to be thoughtful around what our biases might be. Which could affect, you know, intergroup, you know, attitudes and sort of our social identity. And, you know, that's not good or bad, right or wrong. It, it just sort of is. But without the awareness, I then limit or restrict sort of my ability to respond to other people. What about the unspoken? I can begin to, you could judge me by my coffee cup. Sure. Right. No one sees this, but yes. it, we have video. So I'm showing her my coffee cup. It's gigantic. It says coffee for one. Yes. My wife got it for me and she knows I like that drink a lot of coffee. I don't want to go back for a bunch of small cups. I want one big cup. And even if, if it gets a little cool at the end, I might be upset, but I'm still happy there's coffee there. Okay. So that's me. <laughs> so you can prejudge. Right. You can you can prejudge a bit about me potentially mm-hmm. just because of my coffee cup size. Right. Sure. And so if you were there face to face, you can begin to judge a lot of other things about me, Mm -hmm. which does that attribute to a bias? This prejudgment? Is that a bias? Is that the same thing? Are they interconnected? Are they the same thing? Well, I think if I'm talking about sort of, you know, social identities, like how I see myself, how I see others, like, yeah, right. Those things, because I could say people with you know, I don't know, big cups of coffee. I can make inferences and say that, you know, they're not very smart or they can't, you know, count words and sentences. But would that be accurate? (laughs) You could say that. (laughs) I could do those things, okay? 
<laughs> I, I can say big words. I have big words. Right? I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm defending myself here to the, to the, whatever. It's funny. I like this. <laughs> but, right, just because we can't see, you know, our biases or our attitudes don't mean they aren't there. I mean, I've talked about this in other episodes with having worked in South Central LA and um, with gang prevention program. And I really had a bias. I mean, give me some grace. I was a young 20-something year old, so I wasn't as aware, hopefully, as I am more so today. But I walked into that community and environment, you know, just, oh, I mean, ignorant, ignorant of their world, their life, and, you know, where they were at. And so, I mean, there were moments where I missed them big. Like I was not, I, I had every good intention in the world to help these people, these kids. And, you know, my bias sort of ran interference with my intention. And that is disappointing yeah. to me. Well, you can't help your bias to some degree, right? You can be aware of it. Right. And understand the change necessary. Well, but that's how you change it. Right. Right. Exactly. Awareness is key. Yes. And so it doesn't mean that those thoughts or sort of reactions don't still pop up, but you can then respond to them differently. And that's where the learning takes place because you're like, oh, yep, I see you. I know where that came from, but that doesn't really hold much validity in this context. And sort of then, I mean, just like you know, uh, a flower sort of blossoming that you open up and allow to have new experiences, right? Then with that person, group of people, and it has an opportunity to sort of create a hiccup and disrupt mm -hmm. your previous bias because now you have new data. Would you say that the way to have an awareness of and potentially change bias, positive or negative, is through story? Because story is more data, right? Sure. Backstory, context. Given now your experience, that time in your life, you had no story. You had no context. Sure. And so it just plays into what we're trying to key in here, which is the importance of story, the importance of context. This idea of backstory, you didn't have that data before. Right. And you had a bias because of it. Yep. But once you got the information, the story, the context, the backstory – you had the information, you became aware of your bias, and you changed, and you were transformed because of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, trying to put it in the best way I can, like, stories allow for openness. And in a way in which our sort of ego or ourselves don't get as involved, because it doesn't feel like it's against me. Like, what somebody else has walked through or encountered, you know— it doesn't necessarily always mean that I was responsible for that, but rather I can then understand the response to me more so if I have some awareness of them and what they've been through. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what change, I mean, this is what the process of therapy is about and that people can begin to, you know, see themselves um, and to others in different ways that previous as compared to how they learned previously so that they have more more freedom some people are just unwilling though unwilling to be aware of their bias unwilling to change their bias mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And that's ego, right? Ego is a lot of that. Well, ego in the sense of it's protective in nature. Sure. If I don't want to let people in or I don't want to change, it's usually for some self-protective factor, right? Like that feels too risky. That feels too vulnerable. Like I'm going to, you know, you. <laughs> I was talking about it like we all have our castle and like I'm not going to drop the drawbridge over the moat. <laughs> like you can, uh, no way. Like I'm not letting that down to let you in. Right. Look at my walls. Right. And like walls, you know, keep, you in and they keep you safe, but they keep people out. And so you might be safe. You also just might be alone. And I don't know that that's necessarily better, maybe just better in the emotional sense at that time that things don't feel as threatening or overwhelming. Yeah. Something I've uh, become extremely aware of since we've done this show is this idea of mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how when you become aware of something and you have a name to tame it, as we've said before, you've said and I've adopted, that mm-hmm. you can sort of grok or understand something more deeply. And it's just funny because, like, we have a, a young son, five months old, but he's pretty big. He started out small, now he's pretty big. And he, he weighs <laughs> a lot. He's like 19 pounds right now. And so that's a lot. And so she's picking him up and putting him down a lot all day long. And so she's got some backache, you know. And I don't know if it's because I have a high degree of love and empathy that I now have some back pain too, or it's the mirror neurons kicking in high gear, or maybe it's just a brain hiccup or something like that. But for some reason, I empathize deeply to the point sometimes I'm a me too person with her in the fact that she says, she says she's got some sort of problem or some sort of ailment. I'm like, me too. And she's like, don't do (laughs) that. So it's a thing for us. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, I I love this. Mirror neurons are, you know, one of the brain um, mechanisms that is or tends to be involved with empathy and understanding. And so as we've talked about it for before, it's it's not my perspective of your perspective. Rather, if I were to move to where you are, like your perspective, how might I be able to see it from your point of view? So, Mirror neurons, ironically, are relative to our motor systems, right? So that means they're involved in movement. Mm. So no wonder your back hurts. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not, I'm not crazy. My back really does hurt a little bit. <laughs> Researchers point out that mirror neurons enable us to understand other people's actions in terms of our own movement and goals and to empathize with them. So bear in mind that mirror neurons, because I always, whenever we talk about the brain, you guys, please, I hope this sticks. You know, it's never as simple as we'd like to think. That's why research continues and theories or one data point, you know, changes. And so mirror neurons are not the end-all be-all of empathy and its understanding, but it's what researchers are trying to untangle when it comes to better understanding this cognitive process. But that certainly makes sense of this stuff, though, right? Like, just mm-hmm. I think from an outsider in terms of neuroscience and just a curious person, which hopefully we're attracting. If you're curious out there, you're probably listening to this show, which is awesome. Uh, is this this idea that there literally is this mechanism inside of our brains that has a role in is not the end all be all, but has a role in this idea of mm-hmm. empathy? This isn't just simply. It's a skill that you can get better at, but it's a baked in thing into our brain. Mm -hmm. to mirror somebody else's 
presence, perspective, etc. Yeah, so these were discovered by this neuroscientist in his study of monkeys. So his name is Dr. Rizio Lotti and his colleagues at the University of Parma who first identified these. And they were looking at monkeys' premotor cortex. And what happened in this certain area, and this was like back in the 80s, okay? What they found is that this area fired when the monkeys did things like reach for a peanut. And then they wanted to learn how they res- these neurons responded to different objects or actions. And so they used electrodes to record the activity in these monkeys' brains while giving the monkeys different objects to handle. And what they realized was when the monkeys picked up an object, you know, in this case, say a peanut, you know, to hand it to the monkey, or when the researchers picked it up, sorry, to hand it to the monkey, some of the monkeys' motor neurons would even start to fire. And these same neurons are what fired when the monkey itself grasped the peanut, right? So they're watching, like, hi, Adam, I'm going to hand you a peanut. Mm -hmm. And your mirror neurons run the same play as if you grasped the peanut as well. Uh, You know, (laughs) I'm always going to take it back to mountain biking because I'm not that good. (laughs) I really enjoy the process, Mm -hmm. but I like to watch some pro mountain bikers. Like these serious riders who drive, who who ride real fast down right. insane terrain, right? And and now I'm making sense that maybe I enjoy it more because I my mirror neurons are firing with them, and I'm enjoying it as if I am them. So in some ways, they're my avatar going down this mountain, right? <laughs> yes. So I'm I'm at least yes. While I do not have the skills nor the body that can do what they do because they're just Olympic level riders. I can at least enjoy the fact that they can and and take some enjoyment with me because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because, right, I do the same thing even with gymnastics of like picturing gymnasts doing different tricks and sort of like recalling. And I always have to talk back to myself and be like, Mariel, it it wouldn't come out that way if you tried it. Like, that's great. (laughs) My my video would be a fail video. Theirs is a winning (laughs) video. So, yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I love that though. I mean, I love the fact that it, mm-hmm. it makes sense, right? It's it goes back to name entertainment. We have this understanding of this, of this, you know, this thing in our brain, this ability, these neurons that that have science behind it that prove that. Well, when the researcher handed the monkey the peanut, they had a, the same neurons firing as as if they touched themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, these are just like. You know, cool things that researchers find, but just like anything, it's like we don't know what the final puzzle is. So it's like, oh, I discovered a part, but I don't know where that piece fits relative to the broader picture. So it that's why the data and the information we have is always changing. But it also makes sense, these mirror neurons, why it's used so much in like watching videos and visualizing sort of performance is used in athletics and high-performance athletics because your brain is still running that same motor neural network. So it's strengthening, like we talked about in in the attention episode, about strengthening that myelin sheath so that information can travel faster down a neural pathway. Do you think that on that same note, which may be a tangent to our topic today, confidence comes from the strengthening of that? So if I have less strength in that 
mile and sheath, mm-hmm. whatever that, whatever that is. <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. Um, if I have less strength, would I be less confident? So my confidence is built. Huh. Not so much is only there because sure it's a bigger part than that, but is is that one aspect of confidence? Well, I would think that more so, like part of it is, is actually having a broader breadth of neural networks. Like even thinking, you know, where you're at today in terms of podcasting versus over 10 years ago. Yeah, terribly. 10 years <laughs> no, ago. No, but you, you feel more confidence because you have a greater breadth. Like you don't like get to the end. Like there's a sort of, you know, stop. Like the, the road ends here. Sure. You, you, you got nothing to respond to a guest or be like, oh, shoot. Like you, you can recover and adapt so much better today because of all of the experience. Sure. Well, back to the them watching these videos, though. Is it one part to sort of keep these pathways worn, as we've said before, this neuroplasticity? Is that part of the reason or is it because it enables this confidence? Like it, if I can't train today – or if I can't train these moments, or I've, I've trained out that day. And so now I keep training mentally, not physically, by watching these yeah. videos. It sort of enables the perpetuation of the confidence building, the positive focus towards this outcome goal, which is extreme athletics. Yeah, it still reinforces. If your question is, does it still reinforce right. that neural network? Yes. Yeah. Because – Right. I think I shared this before as well about the thumb strengthening exercise, whether I just picture it or I actually do it, mm-hmm. you know, and it doesn't mean like I can just watch TV and then I build those networks like or I just see someone. I was really right? hoping that was my my easy pill. <laughs> I just watch <laughs> awesome mountain bikers, suddenly awesome mountain biker. Right. But also think about the the wider breadth you have in terms of being out on the mountain and doing things and understanding it from a live perspective. Yeah. Like it's not just a distant perspective of seeing somebody else. Yeah. So one other thing I can't help but talk about relative to brain mechanisms sort of involved in storytelling is oxytocin, which if you're not familiar with, it's it's a hormone and it has a lot to do with social bonding and social behavior. So, you know, oxytocin, we've mentioned before, as relative to the the key times when our brain releases it is um, during orgasm, as well as with infant mother bonding after birth and breastfeeding, right? Which is why it's like new moms breastfeeding. It's super helpful to calm all the stress, lack of sleep, all these sort of things, and fosters the attachment, right? So there's been researchers who've looked at this, like Paul, well, Paul Zach, who he is actually someone who looked at integrating neuroscience and economics into what he calls neuroeconomics. And so what he was looking at is sort of the way in which brain processes that support virtuous behaviors like trustworthiness, generosity, sacrifice, as well as those that you know, when they're not there, lead to evil or vice and conflict. So what he found, they they tested um, narratives, so stories shot on video, as opposed to face-to-face interactions, that would cause the brain to make oxytocin. And what they did is taking blood draws before and after the narrative, they found that character-driven stories do consistently cause oxytocin synthesis. Like, that 
the amount of oxytocin released by the brain predicted than how much people were willing to help others. For example, donating money to a charity associated with that story. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It it makes sense why then their donations are connected to galas because they feed you very well or some sort of decent meal. And it's like, well, now it's time to donate. But just anyway, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it would make sense. that So that may be just by happenstance, but it makes sense that they're connected. Right. But it, it's like the stories then that are shared of the people that are helped. Of course. You know, I always think about that, you know, the animal rescue commercials, like that break my heart. Right. I see these like impoverished animals who are like look so sad and scared and impoverished and hurt. And it's like, sure. Yes, you can have my money. Or I, or I want the cat. <laughs> I will adopt a cat. Yes. Yeah. Bring me that cat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, oxytocin, right? Because like I mentioned before, it's never that simple. You have to remember that any chemical in the brain or, you know, anywhere in the body for that matter, which is floating around, is only as good as the receptor it binds to, right? So we've talked about there's sort of chemical, we're electrochemical beings. So there's electrical activity and chemical activity, which produces certain things. And so which receptors these chemicals bind to, where the receptors are, how they react, what they can connect to, can make a world of difference, in how things work. And so little changes in receptors or single, what they call nucleotide changes in the genes that code for receptor proteins can change the proteins within the genes and can change how these receptors work and where they go and what they do. Mm. That was a lot I just said. This is pretty deep. Yeah, this is <laughs> the important thing to grab right. here is that it's, it, it's a key hormone that deals with bonding social behavior, right. connection, right. the things we're talking about. is It's why it plays a key role is because of its presence or lack thereof enables or disables. Right. But And and I w- this was a little caveat to say, hey, it matters where that receptor is, how it works, and like little itty-bitty changes that in the genes that code for these receptor proteins matter. Okay? So that that can change how they get expressed. But this is why it's important in our relationships to be aware of the way in which oxytocin plays a role, right? But if I feel good in social exchanges, I'm probably more prone to be giving. Mm-hmm. That's that's not a far leap, right? Yeah. So with this, you're like, okay, this is all great, but so what do we need to do? Right. What do we, what right? do, we do because of this oxytocin and these things? I would say context counts. And when we don't understand the context of other people, where they're getting stuck, why they're having trouble, why they said what they did, you know, I'm going to have a harder time responding. So Adam's four-word question is super important. How do you mean? (laughs) How do you mean? Tell me more. Right? Ask questions. Do I understand this person, this employee, this, you know, a friend of a friend, you know, that I'm engaging with or interacting with. Like, why did they say that? That person in the, in the meeting, like, what were they thinking when they said X, Y, or Z? Like, hmm, tell me what you mean. How do you mean? You know, I, I don't get it. Consider also, you know, cultural factors that are relevant. I think of this a lot in terms of eye contact because here in the U.S., right, like, and 
you know, I reinforced this with our children about eye contact as a form of respect. Well, in other places, eye contact is a form of disrespect. Like you don't, you know, meet the gaze as a sign, right? And that that's really important. So maybe somebody isn't looking at you when when you're giving them feedback, ironically, to be respectful, (laughs) but you feel insulted. So go ask, right? And, and that's really it. You want to sort of lead with curiosity. And if I'm talking about being curious about other people, I can't help but also bring in respect and humility. Well, I think curiosity to, to me seems like an action or a attitude that uh, is respectful. Right, you're, you're yeah. to be curious means you're inquisitive. Yeah, you're not, you know, I don't know what the uh, you know cross examination. You know, that's the opposite of that. You know, yes. you're not trying yeah. to like cross examine. You're not. It, it seems asking to, them to prove. Right. Yeah. You, you seem like you're on the side of curiosity. Just seems to me just very, in, in some ways, loving, like a loving action. Yes. Yeah. Right. So you know. Again, I don't know you. Can you help me understand you and why behavior X, Y, or Z made sense to you? Okay? And that helps us then build this broader perspective. How also can I see what this person does as relevant to what I do? Like, how can I see myself in their story or vice versa, right? Their story in me. This pulls on that empathy thread. Look, some people have been through really challenging things and they learned skills or strategies that were super helpful in that context. Well, just because I learned it over here, like I learned really well how to box in the ring. I'm pretty sure that the boxing outside of the ring isn't going to bode so well. Right? Right? And then finally, where is the common language? How do we develop a shared sort of language? I think about this. It's interesting hearing, you know, other friends in different professions talk about things. And and I sort of code switch it in my brain. Like one example would be I always in, in sort of talking about what I do in the psychotherapy process, I say I sort of modeled alternative ways that a client can communicate. Right. Right. But teacher friends are like, oh, you know, so I provided these sentence stems. And I'm like, oh, that's a sentence stem, right? Like I gave a different framework and said, here's something you could say. And and people have different words for different things. But if you work to, you know, collaborate with coworkers, acquaintances, people you're trying to get to know, like how can you build a shared language so that you know what the other person means when you're talking about that thing or that way of interfacing? A lot of times we don't always interpret the same thing from the words we use. That's true. Yeah. Right? I see this a lot in doing marital therapy and that I have one partner ask the other, like, what did you hear me say? And the things I hear back, you know, it's like, no, no, that is not what they said. And so it then becomes this like, try again. And so sometimes it involves a person repeating it one more time or saying it in a different way. And then the person trying again, like, what did you hear me say? And they're like, no, that's not what I said still. <laughs> because they have their own filter. And so 
recognizing that and having the person sort of try, try again, there's there's effort, right? And going, you're you're vicariously showing that you value this other person enough to put forth the conversation to try to understand, right? Yeah. So this is where the learning comes in, is when I do these things, I can then improve both with myself and then whatever product or project that I'm working on. We've talked about having a mental framework in previous episodes. And and so in what ways is there overlap in our mental models? Or is there a way that our organization as a whole could create a model that enhances the way in which feedback or interpersonal exchanges are given so that all people feel more understood People work well together and then have this shared story to tell about the impact they're making on and in the world. Because this is where we have the meaning and feel valued. All right, share your thoughts on the power of story at changelog.com slash brain science slash 21. This is episode 21. Open up your show notes and click discuss on changelog news. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd also love for you to join us in our Slack community. It's totally free to join. Talk about all things brain science. Head to changelog.com slash community. Huge thanks to our partners who get it. Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all those beats. And if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed to get all of our podcasts. Head to changelaw.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. It's one feed to rule them all. Get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon.